<clears throat> this is May 3rd, 2020, uh, some six weeks or so now into the uh, coronavirus lockdown. Um, I'm, uh, as, as I have the last few times I've given a show, this is being delivered from my quarters uh, in the Five Arnold Park, the one not not Seven Arnold Park. I'm in isolation too, and uh, I have a bunch of things to um, touch on this morning um, related to the coronavirus lockdown. Uh, of course, it's it it eclipses everything now. How can how can one not uh, comment on different aspects of the coronavirus and the implications, the consequences, and all? But this morning I'm going to talk more about uh, this this uh, isolation as a kind of a practice run for dying. A kind of dying itself, actually. In this past week, at least <clears throat> since my last Tay show, uh, there's been more and more about uh, opening things up again. People are getting impatient. Uh, there are something like half of our states now are in different stages of opening things up, and there are these protests with these guys with the uh, firearms crowding into the Michigan State Capitol building, demanding that things be opened up again. And it's just a lot more now uh, on people's lips than it was just two weeks ago. Uh, when are we going to get things going again? This has gone on long enough. What is this? What's behind this? Well, uh, we can see all the losses that we have suffered or are suffering, at least temporarily, now during this uh, lockdown. Um, most, most importantly, uh, the tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs. Last I heard, it was something like 30 million who've uh, filed for unemployment insurance. This is a big loss. At least it is usually perceived as a big loss. It's certainly a loss when we have no income to pay the bills. It's a loss of uh, one's savings uh, that have to be plundered to pay bills. And it's also potentially a loss of one's sense of self. And this is really what death is, death itself. 
is really the self disappearing. We can talk about what death really is. None of us knows. Uh, we haven't. We can't remember uh, the death in our last life, but we can be sure that death is a loss of one's sense of self, the disappearance of the self. And for people who identify a great deal with their work, then this is a dying. And more than financial loss, Those of us who are not retired yet might reflect on how we will manage retirement, especially if you've had a job for the same same kind of work for a long, long time. How can we not be somewhat identified with that occupation or that position wherever we are? Some people I've just picked up over my lifetime. Some people do very well with retirement. They ease into it and they find themselves, find a new sense of self, retired person self. And others do very badly. I've heard of many cases of people dying of a heart attack in their first or second year of, of retirement. So, presumably, they're so identified with their work that uh, when that passes, then what? Who am I? What is my purpose? So whether it's retirement or it's unemployment, uh, as a younger woman or man, um, we get to notice how we react to having no gainful employment. Other people, say uh, people who are used to working uh, outside the home, uh, face the loss of structure in their in their daily life, a schedule. It's a kind of a facing of formlessness, which is another way of understanding death, losing one's form. Uh, losing uh, wages or salaries also uh, requires facing that one face a loss of independence. Often, not always, but there's a lot that goes with uh, having a job. A lot, of, a lot about independence in that having a job. Same with driving a car.
And then there's just when we can't go out, when we are isolating at home, for the most part, I guess probably just about everyone who's healthy enough goes out for groceries now and then or to the pharmacy. But let's say for the most part, being isolated uh, raises sometimes a, a, a restlessness, uh, wanting to go out and do something. The, uh, the 20th century teacher, Gurdjieff, I don't hear as much about him. I haven't heard as much about him in the last uh, 30 or 40 years as as uh, during the 1970s and 60s. He was a remarkable, original teacher without uh, any... I don't remember him uh, identifying with any particular religion, but he had his own uh, very inventive, resourceful way of a form of spirituality. He once, uh, he was somewhat controversial too, but he once said that behind all of our going out, going out on the town, going out anywhere, I think is what I heard, is sex. Yeah, pretty, pretty strong statement. Uh, for sure, we can be sure he didn't mean every time we go out to shopping or anything else. He didn't mean that we're hoping to get laid. Um, it's much bigger than that. Um, it has to do with uh, thirst. Craving for excitement. And this, in original Buddhism, this was seen as the uh, the engine of the samsara and rebirth is is uh, hunger and thirst. It's uh, in the Mahayana. It's translated. It's uh, the original was Trishna. In the Pali, it's uh, Tana. What these words mean is. Uh, Thirst or craving, not but not so much uh, sense craving, craving for sensual experiences. That may be part of it, but it's more a, a craving to be, to become. In in Buddhism. Uh, we understand that the desire or craving for a continuation of life, it's that that propels us again and again into new rounds of birth and death. That uh, we turn the wheel of samsara, <laughs> not so much the wheel of the Dharma, but the wheel of samsara um, through this craving. Or as someone put it, the will to live makes us relive. Well, one might say, well, of course, we, we all want to be. Um, and yeah, that's true. That's, 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 
That's the wheel of life and death. That's samsara. That's where we all are. We want to be. We want to continue to be. We want to become. I think it also relates to uh, when we talk about the will to be or the will to exist. It also, I think, implies the the the, the will to do something, to have a feeling of agency. I am somebody, and this is what I can do out in the world and have an impact. It's not. Please don't misunderstand. There's nothing wrong with this it's not wrong we're so many money so many ways we want to influence others and have an impact on the world so much so many so much suffering so many problems that we can contribute to but uh i just wonder how much of that is behind this uh restlessness of wanting to or insisting it's becoming militant now insisting that this these uh laws these state laws about isolating uh, that these get behind us so that we can move on and be and do and act again because as long as we're convinced of our self our being and our doing and our acting, then we don't have to examine our inevitable death. There was a a, a movie many years ago, at least 20 years ago, called Moonstruck. Um, and... Uh, it was a drama about an Italian family. Uh, the the daughter was uh, played by Cher, and uh, her mother uh, was once had discovered that uh, her father, Cher's father, had once again uh, cheated on her and had an affair with someone else. Was carrying on with another woman, a mistress, and she was. Uh, moment of anguish where uh, she the camera showed her kind of wringing her hands and saying why <clears throat> why do men have affairs with other women and and you could see the light go on uh, and she, she her face softened and she said because they're afraid to die There's a lot of truth to that. There has to be some fear behind extramarital affairs, infidelity, underneath it all. A fear that gives rise to restlessness, um, looking for something more, more, thirst, craving.
so much of our problems, our, our suffering comes from an unwillingness to face nakedly our own mortality. In, uh, in the Dhammapada, the Dhammapada is a, um, I guess it's considered a sutra. It's the words of the Buddha, a lot of uh, short declarations, teachings of the Buddha. Uh, one of the things in there is it says, the Buddha allegedly says, people would never fight or argue if they fully realized they were going to die. And then from that awareness came uh, a certain Buddhist practice of contemplating death. There are different forms of doing that. But uh, what, what may seem to a lot of people is just something morbid. Uh, actually, if you've ever done it, it gives you a, a great appreciation for your life and for people in your life. As we contemplate death, um, we can learn compassion for our enemies. It softens our heart. It puts things in perspective. This is what, what any conscious awareness of death can do. It gets our priorities in order. It, it causes us to uh, assess how we spend our energy, how we spend our time, what matters, what counts. It's so easy to get swept up in daily trivialities, trivial compared to this great matter of life and death. We have our own little, very short uh, version of this death contemplation uh, as a ritual that we do at the end, at the, in the, in the end of the evening sitting in Sashin. Even as night darkens the green earth, the wheel turns. Death follows birth. How many people in Sashin, as they're hearing that verse, really take it to heart? The wheel turns. We don't know how much time we'll have. I found a poem in a, in a new, I think a fairly new book called The Poetry of Impermanence, Mindfulness, and Joy. <coughs> and uh, this, this poem is uh, about the passage of time and how we can take people for granted. We can take our life for granted because we're not aware. 
Here's the poem is called The Niagara River. It's by K. Ryan. Uh, the Niagara River. As though the river were a floor, we position our table and chairs upon it, eat, and have conversation. As it moves along, we notice, as calmly as though dining room paintings were being replaced, the changing scenes along the shore. We do know, we do know this is the Niagara River, but it is hard to remember what that means. Suppose it's a, it'd be a fair statement that how can we how can we move through life always aware that our days are limited or as, as Dogen said the the certainty of our death and the uncertainty of the time of death how can anyone do that all the time well probably no one can do it all the time but Zen practice offers us a way to not get so blinded by all of the busyness of our daily lives um, that we miss the big picture. That's what sitting can do, daily sitting. It brings some space into our lives, especially right after we've sat the first half hour, hour, we feel a greater sense of spaciousness, openness, relaxation, awareness, and then it tends to fade as the hours pass. But then over time, over enough time, enough years, it starts to seep into uh, our waking hours. Sometimes much of our, many of our waking hours through the day where we can catch ourselves pausing, just catching ourselves Breathing, noticing. Not missing the big picture. Doesn't mean we have to think about death. In that in that giving up of thought activity, unnecessary thought activity is the dying. I ran across a, an article in my files by a David Steindl-Rast. Um, some of you may be familiar with that name. He's a, a Benedictine monk, Catholic Benedictine monk, uh, who has been lecturing and writing for many, many years. Uh, this article is actually a, a reprint from an old parabola. A parabola is a, is a, a magazine, uh, maybe still. Uh, and the, 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 the title is Learning to Die by Brother David Steindl-Rast. 
it's a hyphenated name. The after the hyphen is R A S T Steindlrast. It's very well written, profound article. I've always had a lot of respect for him from through his writings. He he starts by saying in the rule of Saint Benedict, uh, the momentum mori has always been important. It is the time of death, or the 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 um, reflection on death, the awareness. He says it's that's it's always been important because. Um, the basic approaches to the daily life of the monastery is to have death at all times before one's eyes. He says that when he first came across the Benedictine rule and tradition, that was one of the key sentences which impressed and attracted him so much. And he says it isn't primarily a practice of thinking of one's last hour or of death as a physical phenomenon. It is a seeing of every moment of life against the horizon of death and a challenge to incorporate that awareness of dying into every moment so as to become more fully alive. We're not, we're not fully alive if we're bound up in a cocoon of thoughts. That's that's not vitality. That's not wakefulness. That's not aliveness to be carrying thoughts around all day long, as most of us do. Seeing every moment of life against the horizon of death. Again, I would say that's really finding the space, uh, being able to exhale, uh, not just literally, but to let go, to, to give up one's clinging to one's intentions and one's purpose. Again, death is really means no self, and that means no thought. He goes on to talk about purpose. We may be occupied with purposeful activities, with getting tasks accomplished, works completed, and then along comes the phenomenon of death. Whether it is our final death or one of those many deaths through which we go day by day. And death confronts us with the fact that purpose is not enough. Here too, my mind just naturally goes to this extraordinary time of suspended animation in the, the, the COVID isolation where we're all in a kind of suspension, at least compared to our ordinary lives from before this year. And I, from what I hear and read, a lot of people, millions probably, tens of millions of people, are at home without work to do in the same way, either because they lost their job or they can't go out 
into the world, they do, they are confronted by issue of what it's all for. Here, reading some more of Brother David Steindl-Rest, when we come close to death and, and all purpose slips out of our hands, when we can no longer manipulate and control things to achieve specific goals, can our life still be meaningful? He puts a lot of emphasis on meaning. Uh, he says, so there's the challenge. How, when all purpose comes to an end, can there still be meaning? I take his point. Uh, that was the main motivation for me in my early years, my 20s, is what is the meaning of my life? But in Zen, we're not suggesting that we need to be puzzling over meaning. Life is not a riddle to be solved, but a reality to be lived when we are living fully. There need be no concern about meaning. Meaning is an abstraction. Meaning. The teapot is singing, take it off the burner. Hands are dirty, wash them. You're hungry, eat when tired, sleep. Thirsty, drink. Everything else is an overlay, a conceptual overlay about meaning. It's fair enough. It's, I, th has, I think, brought many of us to practice, but we can we can evolve out of concerns about meaning. He goes on to develop this point more. Uh, this distinction that I am making between purpose and meaning isn't always carefully maintained in our everyday language and thought. In fact, we could avoid a good deal of confusion in our lives if we did pay attention to the distinction. It takes only a minimum of awareness to realize that our inner attitude when striving to achieve a purpose, a concrete task, is clearly different from the attitude we assume when something strikes us as specially meaningful. With purposes, we must be active and in control. We must, as we say, take the reins, take things in hand, keep matters under control, and utilize circumstances like tools that serve our aims. The idiomatic expressions we use are symptomatic of goal-oriented, useful activity, and the whole of modern life tends to be thus purpose-oriented. But matters are different when we deal with meaning. Here it is not a matter of using, but of savoring the world around us. In the idioms we use that relate to meaning, we depict ourselves as more passive than active. It did something to me. It touched me deeply. It moved me. Of course, I do not want to play off purpose against meaning or activity against passivity. It is merely a matter of trying to adjust the balance in our hyperactive, 
purpose-ridden society. We distinguish between purpose and meaning, not in order to separate the two, but in order to unite them. Our goal is to let meaning flow into purposeful activities by fusing activity and passivity into genuine responsiveness. Meaning. Fullness. Richness. That's what we can experience when we are not shackled by our thoughts. Moving through our lives, thinking about the future and the past. He goes on, faced with the prospect of death, we must say, I can't take it. After a life in which we take and take, we eventually come up against something which we can't take. Death takes us. This is serious. One can go through life taking, and in the end, all this will add up to having taken one's life, which is, in a real sense, suicide but we can learn to give ourselves. It doesn't come easy, conditioned as we are to be fearful of giving ourselves, but it can be learned. In learning to give ourselves, we learn both to live and to die, to die not only our final death, but those many deaths of daily living by which we become more alive. It's pure Zen. We can learn to give ourselves. This is practice. This is where practice comes in. Not reading or thinking about these things, but doing the daily work of practice. That's where the learning is, such as it might be. It's changing ourselves to to be able to give, to develop this um, life-affirming pattern or impulse to give. And and it all starts with giving up our thoughts. That's the tremendous power of Zazen. When we do it an hour a day, half an hour a day for months and years, we start to get better at it. We start to get better at giving up, which is giving. When we're doing that, we're giving up self because there's no self other than in thoughts. A little more here from Brother David. This is precisely the point. Whenever we give ourselves to whatever presents itself, instead of grasping and holding it, we flow with it. We do not arrest the flow of reality. We do not try to possess. We do not try to hold back. But we let go 
and everything is alive as long as we let go. When we cut the flower, it is no longer alive. When we take water out of the river, it is just a bucket full of water, not the flowing river. When we take air and put it in a balloon, it is no longer the wind. Everything that flows and is alive has to be taken and given at the same time, taken with a very, very light touch. Then he relates a story about a young woman whose mother was close to death, and she asked her, her mother, Are you afraid of dying? And her mother answered, I'm not afraid, but I don't know how to do it. And the daughter was startled by this, lay down on the couch and wondered how she herself would do it if she had to, which we know she will. And she came back with the answer, Mother, I think you have to give yourself to it. Her mother didn't say anything, but then later she said, Fix me a cup of tea and make it just the way I like it, with lots of cream and sugar, because it will be my last cup of tea. I know now how to die. Another word for dying, I guess, is, is surrendering. And that's something that we are getting to practice now in this extraordinary situation where we have so little control about making our way in the world, where we, we have to either surrender to this isolation and make the best of it, or suffer a lot. When uh, in these these last two months we've been exposed to so much in the media about the uh, horrific emergencies in hospitals, the overcrowding, the terrible deaths, uh, the, the toll of, of of death that's going on, and it's a reminder that with this practice, with Zen practice we have a magnificent way to practice dying. To prepare for it. I'm turning now to an, an, another fairly old book called Who Dies by Stephen Levine. I'm just going to read a few things here. If you should die in extreme pain, how will you have prepared to keep your mind soft and open? to be with whatever the moment offers. What have you done to keep your mind present so that you don't block precious opportunity with a concept, with some idea of what's happening? Open to experience the suchness, the living truth 
of the next unknown moment. What are you doing in life that prepares you for death? He says, notice, even with a healthy mind and energy, that is, no sickness, uh, how often it is difficult to stay present, how readily the latent tendencies toward judgment or fear sweep the mind away in a torrent of agitation and attempted control. How much more distracting would it be if your pancreas were pulsating with pain? or if bone cancer had made it impossible to find any comfortable position, lying there in a bed of hot embers. Clearly, a practice that would be useful is to cultivate an openness to what is unpleasant, to acknowledge resistance and fear, to soften and open around it, to let it float free, to let it go. This is all the stuff of sitting when we can't move, sitting with others and facing ourselves, uh, living at our edge and facing unpleasantness, pain. Instead of resisting or fleeing, he says, if you wrote down a list of your resistances and holdings, it would nearly be a sketch of your personality. If you identify with that personality as who you are, you amplify the fear of death, the imagined loss of imagined individuality. It's it's physical pain, not something we want to um, unnecessarily uh, cause ourselves, but with some to have some discomfort in sitting in order to develop concentration is great practice for letting go, to soften. This is what you learn through physical pain in in the Zendo, is it doesn't do any good to white-knuckle it. It's not an effective way of dealing with physical pain or emotional pain, but rather to exhale, to release. How do you do that? Through absorption in the practice, the breath practice or whatever one's practice is. A little bit more. He quotes the Buddha that fortune changes like the swish of a horse's tail. Tomorrow could be the first day of 30 years of quadriplegia. What preparations have you made to open to an inner life so full that whatever happens can be used as a means of enriching your focus? It's an ongoing process of opening to life. The more you open to life, the less death becomes the enemy. When you start using death as a means of focusing on life, then everything becomes just as it is, just this moment an extraordinary opportunity to be really alive. I touched on this in my podcast uh, last week about uh, when we are 
in a state of extremity. I was talking about climbing this volcano in Mexico. When we're in a state of extremity, the only thing, the only, only intelligent thing is to become one with it. Find a way. We have this method, thousands of years old, this method of becoming one with the conditions of our life. It is the only intelligent way to meet with adversity. And one last thing. In a way, it seems strange that we are so unprepared for death, considering how many opportunities we have to open to what is unexpected or even disagreeable. Each time we don't feel well, each time we have the flu, (laughs) or a kidney stone, or a pain and stiffness in the back, we have the opportunity to see that sooner or later, some pain or illness is going to arise that won't diminish but will increase until it displaces us from the body. We can use each such situation as an extraordinary opportunity to practice the death chant. We are reminded again and again of the process we are, the process we are. Continually, opportunities arise to practice letting go of this solidness, this illusion, I should say, of solidness, to tune to the ongoing process, to sense the spaciousness in which it's all unfolding. So, this this isolation that we're still under, is its own kind of pain, of course. I think most people experience it as painful. Maybe mixed, maybe mixed, where it can be have a, a pleasant aspect feature to it, but um, it's limiting. So if you experience it as trying, as difficult to be cooped up all the time, <coughs> oh, there's there's your opportunity to find a way to not resist it, not to flee it, but to accommodate it. All right, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <coughs> All beings without number, I vow to liberate Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate Endless blind passions I vowed above root. Dharma gates beyond measure. I vowed to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vowed to attain all beings without number. 
I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.